You're listening to Dirty Feet, a podcast from No More Radio. Vous écoutez le podcast Dirty Feet sur les ondes de No More Radio. Hosted by, animé par, Alison Burns, JD Papillon, et Stéphanie Morin-Robert. Stay tuned. We're going to move you. This week on the Dirty Feet podcast, we have uh, one return guest uh, amongst a few others. We're going to be speaking with uh, Miriam Genestier today about uh, her Studio 303, which is a huge uh, resource here in Montreal for dancers of uh, at all points in their career. And uh, we want to talk a bit about the history of 303 and kind of where it is currently, both in what it offers and kind of... Uh, the struggles that both uh, Studio 303 and the industry are going through, which will uh, eventually land us talking about Cabaret Tolle, which is uh, an event coming up on Saturday that's uh, both a fundraiser and, and sort of a protest, perhaps, or just a statement about the current state of affairs and also, of course, a, a show and a uh, chance to, to, to hang out and, and share ideas. And uh, I don't know, we'll find out a little bit about that later. But let's back up and we're going to talk about 303. We're, we're here with, uh, with Miriam, as I said before, who is the uh, Artistic and General Director of Studio 303. We also have Andrea Rideout here with us, and she is the production and technical director of the studio. And so, hello, ladies. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Cool. Now, Miriam, as I mentioned before, we had you on earlier. We had you on in 2013 uh, in March for the Edgy Women Festival. So uh, we talked a bit about 303 in, in the context of, of how it relates to that festival. But let's back up even further and talk about 303 and where it came from and uh, what its mandate was right at the beginning. Okay. Well, back in 1989, Studio 303 was founded by three dance artists, um, Martha Carter, Joe Leslie, and Isabel Van Grimt, who were looking for, you know, they were sharing a place that where they could rehearse, uh, maybe show some work in progress, and uh, teach. And the, that kind of communal project fell apart pretty quickly. Um, Isabel and Joe, I think, both left within the first year. Or soon thereafter, and Martha um, sort of inherited the place solo. But it was never her objective to for it to be her place. So she was always looking for ways to involve other people. From the very start, um, it's funny because I, I I've got a, a piece of paper where there's all these. Um, like a brainstorming for the name of the space. It's a really fun thing to look at. And it's all this like dance and dance and dance. and But you can see that they were a bit uncomfortable with, with pigeonholing it or nothing really worked out in Studio 303, just the locale, the number of the locale was the chosen um, name of the space, and which is great because it, it, it's allowed it to keep its mandate open. And from the very beginning, I don't know if it was the mission or if it was... Um, a tagline, but it was always called Studio 303 Danse et Art Connex. So it was always dance and related arts, which just left this door wide open for other stuff to happen, but always remembering that the dance community was its central community. And um, yeah, so it's always been a space. There's always been uh, professional development, so professional level workshops, uh, where artists can train or learn new techniques or explore with creation stuff. Um, from the very beginning, there was Vernissage Dance Series, which was a place where uh, dance artists mostly, but also related arts, <laughs> would show works in progress. And there were always rehearsals there. So I think slowly the mandate now is, is developed um, more and more towards this professional development. And there's a a more a bigger di uh, diversity of programs and more specific things that are being offered, but these three things still happen: creation, presenting, and uh, training. Something interesting that I, I find about what you offer in terms of programs is also uh, you you have a you separate the workshops offered into for professionals and for the general public, and you allow people to come in and experience these workshops without necessarily any background in in the arts or dance. Well. Technically, our morning workshops are only for professional artists. They're funded, so, you know, that they really do have to serve professionals. But there are a few of them that are offered that are open to uh, a broader 
you know, a very loose definition of professional um, and multidisciplinary artists from all kinds of disciplines, including sometimes writers or philosophers or stuff like that. But we also have, we have evening classes and those are the ones that are open to all. And they're, they're, they're different because we don't really program them in the same way. Um, they're a little more, they come to us and, and, uh, we've got longstanding relationships with a lot of our evening classes and we've got new ones happening too. And those are open to everyone. You also curate a lot of events, uh, a variety of, of, of events, and I would love to hear more about them specifically. Uh, I'm thinking of um, your, your integrated events, where you where you're asking artists from different disciplines to propose projects to work on together. Can you describe that project for us? That's a new project. That's Metamorphose, and uh, for Metamorphose, we we're inviting visual artist and a dance or movement based artist to work together to create a new work, and it's just. It's an attempt to bring those diverse communities together, but it was really inspired by a particular artist called Piru, Japanese artist, who makes uh, wearable art. And um, I just thought it would be exciting to see what was out there. Um, and it was a, a fun project, too, because we opened it up to, you know, it was open to teams of people who wanted to work together, but also to artists who uh, were willing to be put on a blind date with another artist. And and that's always a good opportunity for for young artists or, or people who just need a, um, they're just dying for a little stimulation or a different context. And um, when we did the, the most recent Metamorphose, we did get really an unlikely pairing. And I thought it was really fun that they decided to work together. We got a um, a circus artist that fresh out of school who, you know, has been training like crazy for years and who has never worked less than six months on one five minute routine. So for her to be given a two week residency to make a 15 minute piece with someone she didn't know, who was Jay Sabaka, who's a, um, a really DIY, uh, visual artist, filmmaker, uh, really just like two completely different universes. And it was pretty magical what they came up with. And this seems to be tagging off of the Edgy Women Festival. You have the, the Edgy Challenge coming up in March. What's, uh, what's that all about? Yeah, that's another similar project in the sense where we're not asking for proposals. We're just asking people to be enthusiastic and game and curious and the Edgy Challenge uh, gives artists a, a kind of toolkit. So they, we kind of send them on a mission and uh, they get assigned their mission, I think, three weeks before coming up soon. And uh, each kit will contain uh, maybe a, a, an inspirational quote. Uh, there will be a theme. There will be an object, which we have yet to acquire. Um yeah, and it's, it's it's really fun. Artists love it. It's kind of exciting. It's like a loot bag that they get, and then everyone gets the same timeline. From hearing this, one thing that uh, that really strikes me as um, putting apart from you know most other diffu- uh, presenters in Montreal, Studio Three Hundred Three really goes towards um, exploration and not putting on just a show, but really trying to explore dance, uh, explore other forms of art. Um, Do you feel that this is really sticking to the mandate, the original mandate, which was to not just put on a show, but really like allow artists to develop and to create new connections, both within their own works and with other artists? Yeah, I I think it is sticking to the original mandate and I guess the the more refined version of it now is that is Studio 303 supports uh, live art um, and that we're specifically interested in dance and new practices um, yeah I think it I think it's a way of kind of having the three because people get confused about what we do because we do so much and because we are dance focused yet we're interdisciplinary but i think that these projects are a way to tie things together some they often come with a residency um as well and sometimes people create new work also in the context of a workshop so yeah for me they they, they do tie in well 
I'd like to hear a bit to hear a bit more about the residencies that are offered by 303 because for a lot of upcoming artists who might not be able to uh, to afford studio space what what is being offered by 303 is often one of the first opportunities that they get to really get a professional studio in which they can work in which they can explore um, how exactly is it set up for artists who apply for residencies? Can you explain to us a bit of the process there? Yeah, it's interesting you ask, and it is getting a little more precise uh, these days. So there's, there's really, other than residencies that are attached to a challenge, like Metamorphose or Remix, where we're inviting people to come remix each other's work, with these projects, they, they come with a residency, but you have to apply for the project. If you just want a residency to, to work on your own work, um, we offer a summer residency, which is more uh, early stages, exploration-based. It comes with uh, um, a, a cachet. We, we pay the artists as well, um, and some uh, mentoring if they want it. And that can be quite spread out also. It can be over two months or three weeks, depending on their needs. And then the other type of residency, that, sorry, and that's for about maybe four or five projects in the summer. Uh, and then the other type of residency that we offer is over the Christmas holidays. And that's for two artists, one week each. And it's really, it's got to be somebody that we already know well, because basically we give them the keys and say, <laughs> could you also plants. water the plants? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we, we give them access to all the equipment. So that's more for a later stage uh, where they just need to, you know, set some stuff up, test out some lights um, and sound, etc. So it's called a technical residency. But we don't offer, we offer the equipment, but not the personnel. So yeah. if they're at the stage where they're working with their collaborators and they can bring their collaborators in studio with them and have access to the equipment, it's 24-hour access. It's a good opportunity. And you support in a range of ways. You're, you also have labs for uh, for grant writing and for helping individuals uh, go over their grants for for government funding and whatnot. And this is one of the few places where we can have access to that kind of resources. Yeah, it's it's funny actually. It's you know, there's actually a lot of places that offer maybe not exactly the same thing, but that offer help with grant writing. And I find I've actually started the labs also. Um, like I have the, a consult lab also that just gives information where I also point people to all the different resources. For sure, Studio 303's grant labs are really specialized. They are uh, usually offered by myself and they're uh, for either to interdisciplinary, you know, inter-arts at the Canada Council, the Calc, or dance. And I've sat on juries for both of those grants. So that's what's really different because... Uh, I'm able to give a bit of an insider's perspective on what really happens when your project is seen by a jury. Uh, for example, a lot of some artists write um, projects to go to impulse dance. And what I tell them is, by the way, there's 40 other applications also applying for impulse dance. So don't spend two pages telling us what impulse dance is. <laughs> and that's the so kind of really specific information that they'll get. And also um, the inter-arts at the Canada Council and... Um, multidisciplinar at the Calc, they don't have the same uh, culture or expectations, even if it looks like it in the guidelines. So I'm a bit, I'm able to explain uh, in a more nuanced way uh, how they should orient their, their grant application. So we, we've spoken about uh, the artistic support, we've spoken about a bit the technical support and also the, the, the granting support you're offering. Can you talk a bit about the, the kind of community uh, support that, that 303 offers? Uh, I'm, I'm thinking um, in events with kind of repeat uh, clients that come and, and, and kind of share the space, share the, the experiences together. Can you speak a bit to the community of 303? I guess the it's kind of it's a bit difficult because right now we're in a transition phase um and i would say edgy women was the biggest um the most popular event and the one that had the most the clearest uh, identifiable community and that has come to an end after uh, 20 years we're we're doing a kind of we're doing edgy redux which is a, a light <laughs> or edgy condensed light. it's not really light it's more ultra condensed mm -hmm. uh, powerful version. but compressed so i think i think community is something we're really questioning right now and reconsidering 
Um, my my frame of reference is significantly less than Miriam's. I've been with Studio 303 for a year and a half, and she's been there for 20 plus years, which is such a gift for 303. Um, but in my observation, community is something that is a byproduct of our deliberate activities. So um, it's not necessarily a, like a bullet point on our mandate, but it's something, it, it's kind of, it's the only thing that we, it's, it's the whole point, but it's not one of the points, you know? Um, so what I've seen is that we see um, familiar faces at it, you know, at all of those different levels of activities at the um, cours de soir, at the workshops in the morning, the professional workshops, as part of our season in the residencies, um, coming to the different support labs, and just coming to visit us every once in a while. We have a foosball table in our office, and people co- like to come hang out on the couch or play foosball with us, help themselves to a cup of tea. There's been some um, informal gatherings. Over the past couple of years, you know, um, launch events for for different activities or Christmas parties, that kind of thing. And the salon labs also, where there's about a dozen artists that get together once a month just to really talk about whatever is preoccupying them. and um, Artistically. Artistically or politically and... So I feel, yeah, there's, there's kind of like a, a really small core community and then all kinds of diverse communities that exactly are related to the different facets uh, of the programming. Mm-hmm. Is it useful to talk about the different networks that we're connected to or involved in or have founded or co-founded? I think, I think definitely. I think that's, that's kind of a part of the, the community, right? Um, it has a, an important role. I think, I mean, another, like, a, there's, it's not really a network, but I would say that 303 is struggling also to create a community or to figure out who else there is in the world um, that is in that kind of position of, of power as a, a institution with money <laughs> that, that, you know, programs work by artists or uh, to find um, other people internationally who are trying to figure out different ways of working or... Um, and to just change some of those power dynamics. Um, and that, that can include presenters or curators or just players, really, <laughs> of all sorts, producers. We're also part of the, um, in the uh, interdisciplinary, Quebec's Interdisciplinary Arts Network. Um, they uh, also, they're housed in our smaller office, so there's a lot of back and forth, and we collaborate with them on workshop programming. But I'd say that that whole community, the the community of interdisciplinary artists, is one that 303 is very committed to. But that's also really hard to define and hard to bring together because there's so many different practices, and it is it's the poorest of all the arts communities too. It's very difficult, very challenging being an interdisciplinary artist these days. When you say poorest, what do you mean? Like the least funded, the worst funded, worse than dance. (laughs) I think dance is kind of at the bottom. So one of the things I've heard quite often about interdisciplinary arts is that when it comes to grants, um, people often fall between categories. And this creates a lot of complications for artists who want to do multidisciplinary projects. Is it something that you feel is uh, is going to shift ever? Do you feel that the government, the funding institutions are starting to open up to that a bit more? Or do you feel that they're still, they've still got a bit of blinders when it comes to interdisciplinary arts? Um, there's some serious blinders. <laughs> and I think different things are, are happening on different levels. I think there's a sense that the uh, Conseil des Arts et des Lettres du Québec and the Canada Council are a bit um, disinterested, not not defending it. There, there's you you hear currents sometimes of a kind of well, you know, now that all the other disciplines are so open and that everybody's doing interdisciplinary work anyway, do we really need this category? It's a valid question, but it's dangerous. Um, you know, you have to be careful about the way you ask it because I think the bigger question is, do we need any disciplinary categories to presume that everybody has uh, this like 
disciplinary birthplace nation that they can go back to, you know, be sent home to is is really it's it's ridiculous and it's outdated and outdated. But at the same time, I think there there are some. I know Shannon Litzenberger, who's a, a policy activist and dance artist, uh, wrote a long report that the Metcalf Foundation had commissioned from her, where she really argued for um, for removing the disciplined based funding model, and really she really challenges it. But but. Um, and she says, I think it's in uh, Australia or in New Zealand. There's, there's a lot, and in the UK now, there's a lot of places. It's a new thing, right? Getting rid of the disciplines, but it's, it's switching to an industry-based model, which is not necessarily <laughs> a good thing either. Because in both of those models, anything that's experimental is going to just be really outshadowed and squashed. I feel. So I think I think it's important to think about um, scale. I think those are huge differences, right? If you're working small scale or large scale, and another really vital difference is if you're doing experimental or mainstream or repertory. These are so different to me. This is a, a better way to compare works. Um, one thing that might be a bit of a taboo subject, I don't know, but. Uh, another question I have is when it comes to content, how much do you feel that, because I, I, I feel that during the past few years, um, mainly part to the government we now have in Canada, uh, content has become more of an issue and subjects that might not be deemed appropriate uh, are likely to receive less funding. Is this just me feeling that or do you feel that this is something that's been happening? I think there's different tendencies with the different bodies, but that one of the... I mean, yeah, for sure. With heritage, I think content is really touchy, and and I think, yeah, <laughs> for there it's clear. With the Canada Council and the Calc, um, it really depends on the program. I'm feeling that, uh, for example, in dance, uh, anything that's sort of too hard to put your finger on is. People like more concrete projects and they like it to sound like you you really know what you're doing. And another example from Shannon Litzenberger's report is she had a project that was a bit, you know, a bit weird, a bit community involving, a bit, I'm, I'm not sure what, but it was out of the regular project. And she got refused funding several years. And then she decided to write a grant that she thought they would want to hear. And she went to the studio to make material for the grant application it had nothing to do with the project and then she got the grant so <laughs> that's an example of where you kind of have to know what people want um and with with interarts at the canada council though it's something is really shifting the focus used to be on experimentation artists between the cracks uh, you know undefined work people that that were pushing boundaries and now it's become Um, very clearly, uh, well, that the, the, they they value um, community work, even though there's a program for work that deals with community that is paradisciplinary and any discipline you can. It seems like they're really really pushing that in interarts, um, and it's also a place where because interarts uh, is not supposed to fund. Uh, presenters. It's only supposed to fund uh, creation, and but they're they're funding lots of stuff that is kind of presenting, but it's because it's intercultural. So they're really mixing intercultural with interdisciplinary, um, and it's becoming the unofficial home of uh, of these you know people who are doing uh, contemporary. Uh, mixing contemporary dance with classical Indian or jig with something which, you know, or instead of... Or theater with parades. Or theater with parades or... So there's a kind Not of... A joke. <laughs> there's an unspoken... Really, people who are, are, are applying to this program, there's an unspoken sense that if we're not doing some kind of humanitarian work, um, don't bother applying. It's, <laughs> it's really that bad, so... 
So one thing that's happened is that a lot of people who previously had been funded in that program have been like shuttled off to other disciplines. And it makes it very difficult because the situation of peer jury, they're, they're not recognized by these peers that they're now told are their peers, and they have no relationship with the program officers. So it's like starting at zero, you know, even people who were awarded like awards, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of Daniel Barrow, who, you know, a number of years ago, he won the Victor Martin staunch whatever award that is like you get that on top of your grant you know he won that in interarts and suddenly they're like oh you're not interarts you're visual arts you know so and I mean it, you spend time building your practice and being familiar with people that are like which is an anomaly within interdisciplinary work because you're and this is something I encounter a lot as a board member at the RAIC um, the Regroupement des Artistes Interdisciplinaires du Québec is that it's very difficult to to have a banner for interdisciplinary artists because most of them their practices are very dissimilar you know so it's like you have people that are doing very intimate in the streets work that's really just for documentation you have people that are doing things that are in maybe more conventional spaces you have people whose practices are are maybe more virtual you know so it's it's hard to find links and so yeah i don't know it feels like an anarchist conference sometimes <laughs> before uh, before we continue the discussion I feel we should introduce uh, two other guests who just joined us so there's Alexia O'Hara whom we just heard and Karen Fennell who will both be part of the Cabaret Tolle so well first of all thanks for coming on the on the show with us today uh, so just to continue with um, with the difficulties in getting grants um So uh, this year, Studio 303 is going through um, the year without having received uh, one of its most important uh, grants that, that you guys were receiving, which is the Heritage uh, Grant. Could you talk to us a bit about how that came about, like when you heard about that? Like uh, it's something that you were receiving pretty much every year and all of a sudden it stops. Were you ever put in context of why this grant was being refused this year? Did you guys do anything different to get this grant refused? What happened exactly? I mean, I have uh, lots of theories about why the grant was refused, but yes, we received um, since for over 12 years, we've been receiving between $40,000 and $50,000 a year. It diminished a little bit. When it would diminish by $2,000, I would be on the phone with the agent and we'd be talking for 40 minutes and she would go through it with me and kind of say, you know, Well, according to the criteria of the pro of, of the uh, funders, you know, maybe your your promotion is not quite up to speed. So, you know, print in color or whatever. So, I'd get this kind of concrete feedback that was often a little bit like Ugh, whatever, but I could use it. Um, and uh, it's also it's uh, the the officer has rotated a lot, so it's been hard to develop a relationship. But I do have a, a very good relationship with the officer that we have now. So last, uh, the last one, yeah, last March, I got a letter that just said, um, all it says is, the government of Canada's ongoing objectives are to fund projects designed to deliver measurable and tangible results, to optimize available funds, and to meet the needs of Canadians. It is within this context that, on behalf of the Honorable James Moore, Minister of Canadian Heritage and Official Languages, I regret to inform you that your application has not been approved. So that's the letter I got, which was very <laughs> strange. Um, and by the way, it's pretty much the same. It's, you know, it's a form letter, as you can tell. So I called the number uh, of the regional manager, because that's it said to call him for inquiries. I called him and he said, well, I really can't say anything Um I have no idea, you know, uh, yep, that's strange. <laughs> and uh, he was very evasive and really had nothing to say. And I said, well, that's odd because it said to call you, but you don't know anything. So I guess I'll call my agent since I know she's read it, you know. <laughs> and he said, oh, I, I don't recommend that. But, you know, she won't have anything to say either. And I just thought, what the hell is going on? <laughs> so I called her and I spent a good 20 minutes on the phone with her where she basically said nothing. It was just um, embarrassed pauses and um, apologetic, basically apologizing and saying she couldn't say anything more. So then I called a, a couple of levels up to, I, I think, the uh, yeah the person in charge of... Um, 
I'm sorry, I don't know his, uh, I guess, acting director. And uh, then I got I got the scoop more from him. But it was basically everyone just kept saying, "Don't worry, you know, it's 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 never it was never was guaranteed." And just really encourage you to apply again next year. Um, and that's yeah. With I, but I found out that basically the decision was made at the federal level, and that there's and that the reason is what I just read to you and that there are no other reasons and that I can't have any other reasons ever. And I, I argued, I said, well, you know, I, how can I even know that? I mean, I'm pretty sure James Moore didn't read the grant. So who did like, who's responsible for making that decision and what I never got any answers. Um, and I, I've decided uh, with uh, the support of 303 staff and the board to kind of boycott this grant. We're not going to reapply for it uh, to it until the government changes because um it's not the kind of funding that we can it's too destabilizing to have to maybe have it one year and then maybe not the next and it's too uh, it's too fundamental so um, it, anecdotally i had a couple of encounters with people at heritage like at parties strange parties just <laughs> <laughs> a great party <laughs> yeah yeah i was at the toronto international film festival and i was went to this party and there was all these celebrities there and I was like oh my god there's Shelley Glover the heritage minister so I worked up got drunk enough to talk to her and um uh that was less of an illuminating conversation than when at Christmas time I was at a relative's Christmas party and I met the chief of staff of the heritage minister and he like with no I mean understanding that you know I'm an artist that I'm coming at him as this like lefty artist, you know, he told me, we were discussing another, we were discussing the rhubarb festival and how they had had their funding cut. And they operate out of buddies and bad times in, in, in Toronto. And, uh, and he said to me, well, what do they expect when they showed a play called Fuck Harper, which incidentally was not the rhubarb festival, it was a rental, it was, but it happened at buddies and bad times. So, so he was basically saying to me that actually like arts funding has nothing to do with artistic merit but everything to do with whether or not you're criticizing the government which is terrifying as a concept because that means that we're basically what what it took me a minute to realize this and of course you always think of the best things to think of in hindsight you know because i was i was realizing that he was talking to me you know as if this money was his money, as if this money was Stephen Harper's money to give away, you know? And it's not his money. It's not the conservative government's money. It's not this current administration's money, you know? It's the country's money. And so it really shouldn't, there shouldn't be political motivations for arts funding, you know? But, but this man also kept talking about everything. Every, you know, at first it was hard to have this conversation because I was just like, I just had so much hate in, on, in me, you <laughs> just know? Just wanted to punch him. <laughs> yeah, like seriously. So then it's like, okay, try to rid myself of my passion and just kind of get curious here because this is a privileged situation I have to be talking to this person, you know, to get this opportunity. And he kept saying, we, we, we. And I was like, who's we? You know, is this, are you talking about... Heritage Canada? Like, who are you talking about? And he's like, no, no, the political. So it kind of gave this indication that, like, that there is this ideological mandate behind every decision that's being made. And so you can extend that beyond what's happening in culture. You can look at what's happening with, at the, at the, you know, the, Health or health, yeah, health departments or or the science or in, or the or Environment Canada or Parks Canada or you know every level of what they're doing, and we're seeing this that it's like there's an ideological mandate to what's happening, and it has to do with with eroding any opposition to this very neoliberal, pro corporate, pro mining agenda. You know, and I mean, it's terrifying. In my mind, because <laughs> there's we got two more years of this, and there and there's going to be a lot of damage done that will be irreversible. I just wanted to add. Um, I had this conversation with a friend of mine the other day, who's um, an artist that works um, in various disciplines. She's a poet, a writer, a musician, um, and it's kind of her. I can't really t tell all the details of the situation, but basically, she had a very personal uh, encounter with Canadian heritage, where she was like 
or she was hired by them to create a piece, like a, a spoken word piece before an event. And basically what it came down to was they kept like asking her to change what she'd written, asking her to take out sections. And in the end, they like revoked. She had signed a contract and everything. And in the end, they were like, oh, sorry, we'll still pay you the money, but we don't want your piece. And she she didn't know exactly she said she couldn't know exactly why this happened, but as far as she could tell, it was due to like some of the content that was like from her point of view, like she is a First Nations artist, has a lot of feminist perspectives, and she from her personal opinion, she said of course she couldn't they wouldn't say this and she couldn't verify this, but she was pretty sure that it was just some of the content that she was putting in that they just couldn't deal with. And so they basically just censored her out of the whole thing. Even though they'd commissioned her as an artist that surely they would be familiar with her work and her perspectives to write a piece for this event. And then at the last minute after she'd done all this work, they were just like, oh, never mind. We don't want your piece. <laughs> and Miriam, I want to put you in touch with her because I feel like you guys need to talk. Yeah. I mean, that's it, right? We, we all kind of think we know why. And we're, we're probably right, but we're unable to prove, you know, the other, the trends in, in, I mean, this business of getting funding regularly and then not getting funding is extremely rare and extremely recent. I don't think it's ever happened with another government. I mean, that's what they have regional advisors for because they're the professionals that know what's going on and that are able to make assessments. And, you know, the... At the federal level, it's it's just a double checking procedure, not a I don't like this, yeah. I don't like that. Well, in, and in many ways, to do that, it's it's actually it, it's so harmful because it, like there's something almost a saboteur move to really destabilize this particular organization, you know, and to suddenly make a program that is you know a, a, an even keel like funding program, and to suddenly go, oh no, well by the way, it's a lottery, you know, and you should be grateful that, mm -hmm. that you've ever gotten it in the past. It's, it's extremely uh, disruptive. and No and concept of the general ecology and what killing off or, you know, harming bits does to the whole as well. So yeah. it's really irresponsible. Mm -hmm. the, another thing that this guy, the chief of staff, said to me when I was talking about the Rhubarb Festival, or we were talking about that, he, says, he said to me, well, it was only $30,000. Which just goes to show the disconnect between what happens in that world and what happens in our world. Like there is no arts organization, no artist-run center, no independent festival that would say it's only $30,000 because $30,000 is probably four paid employees for five months of the year, you know, or it's like countless artist fees or it's like an entire technical grid rental, you know, like, I mean... But for them, $30,000 is the budget that they have for Stephen Harper's haircuts, you know? So it's like, it's not a big deal, you know? And mm. yeah, so you really, I mean, it's hard to not feel this us against them thing because it's really set up in this way to, to make us feel inconsequential and basically like, well, you guys go take care of yourselves and, mm -hmm. you know, you're not part of us. You don't, you don't take care of the needs of Canadians. <laughs> And I think that the growing trend at the Canada Council and elsewhere where to, to kind of pressure artists to uh, mix community work with their art, I really think it comes from the same place, a kind of panic of having to prove that we're useful and valuable uh, because otherwise, yeah, we just won't get funded because things that uh, don't kind of fit into the capitalist framework are not worth funding. Mm -hmm. There was a strong hint of that in the response that you got about um, tangible results mm -hmm. and a product needing to come out of, of the grants, basically. Um, this is something I feel is really risky, like focusing so much on the product, on how much money it's going to bring and everything, because then we just fall into this plazas arts category where, you know, are you making enough money for us to really warrant this grant? Mm -hmm. the, do, do you feel that there are still possibilities for for people to receive grants and for being supported uh, with, with that idea of artistic development in mind? Or is this something that is just disappearing completely? I, I don't think it's disappeared completely. You know, I, I mean, there certainly 
certainly we're lucky that at the provincial level, there's there's a lot still available for people. And, and it seems like as far as an interdisciplinary work, although the, the envelope is, is very small compared to other disciplines, the, they still have a, a pretty competent uh, jury selection process so that you're actually getting evaluated by peers, you know. Um, and... And I mean, but I think in general, like the governments are very happy and not just in Canada, like this is a, this is a worldwide trend, you know, in, in Europe, there's been a number of countries that have had their arts funding completely decimated. And it basically this idea that like, well, if it's not Cirque du Soleil, if it's not Céline Dion, if it's not, if it's not really commercial, then it's not worth it. So there's no understanding of like the ecology of how arts develop and basically how society, how, what art, the role that art plays in society, because, you know, like you'll see things in Cirque du Soleil that originated on the streets that originated at 303 you know I mean it's like you need to have people doing experimental stuff to feed into the commercial stuff you know but there's not really a recognition that that role you know as uh, is is important you know because anyway so there's there's that and and then the other thing is that that we're looking at um, the governments are very happy to see things like Kickstarter and Indiegogo take over because that will absolve them of responsibility of of distributing money on on a kind of governmental level. This idea that like it's actually like a really like it's a neoliberal wet dream to let everybody just kind of take care of their themselves, you know. And so it's like you you don't need this idea of like you know they're trying to erode the idea of like a a societal network, you know, that we contribute to and that, you know, I mean, this is like, these are, these are the Republicans, these are the conservatives, these, you know, the, this is like this idea of small government and, you know, and private privatization of everything. Everybody's becoming a business now. Yeah. To me, I was just going to add something um, in terms of placing, you know, the value of art on the product that it makes or how much money it's bringing in. I mean, the other thing is if you if you're saying that the only kinds of work that have value or are important are the ones that are selling big tickets at Place des Arts, then who are you saying that art matters to? Because who can afford to go to Place des Arts? You know, versus shows that are made, that are shown at more alternative venues or that are you know produced by organizations such as 303 or organizations such as Tangente or you know where someone can go see a show for less than twenty dollars. Like, who are we saying that art has value to? Like, only the only the richest sector the of the poor people population. get television you know like it's just a com- it's just a complete um eroding of the whole purpose of art in the first place which is to enrich the quality of life of the citizens of a place in my humble opinion and the soul yeah there's also the um, one thing that that's really scary i find is um, artists who belong to minorities to some extent or who have a discourse that goes against the the major culture such as feminist discourse or queer perspective and things like that is going to be faded out of, of the public um, consumption of art to some extent and in a way I feel that you mentioned bodies in bad times this is what they're going through Studio 303 to some extent with Edgy Women which is a very feminist and quite queer festival this is you know what's happening also um yeah i'm just throwing it out there and trying to get a reaction because this is something that personally i feel is very scary i think there's going to be less money for artists and that sucks but you know this kind of stuff this kind of crap is really good for art and (laughs) it's not gonna it's not gonna make anybody shut up that's for sure i mean you know we weren't we weren't dying to do, uh, you know, I wasn't putting tons of energy in making an anti-Harper cabaret until they did this to us. And uh, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. there you go, Nana. Uh, you know, and, and the choice to not even to really to actually kind of boycott that funding until things change is super liberating. Yeah, it sucks money wise. And, and that is hard. Uh, yeah, in in many ways, I, I've made the same decision mm-hmm. personally as far as the Canada Council is concerned. Mm-hmm. Like, I haven't, I haven't uh, gotten funding from them. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I, I was getting relatively consistent funding in in many different uh, programs, actually, in music and spoken word and inter arts and and. Now it's been since 2008, and I'm like, well, you know, I, 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 in many ways, it's like, do I even, do I even want federal money? You know, it's, it's. I mean, of course, 
I don't know. It just it's it, it. That's what they want. I mean, I it's a, it's a complex issue because, of course, that's what they want you to do. They they like, and this ties into this idea of it's the, it, be, it being their money or whatever, you know, which it's not. But but it's like th- this idea that we would have to write entire grants that have nothing to do with our actual practice because we want to convince them to give us the money is just disgusting. You know, it's like, <laughs> I mean, the the work. The work is good. The work is popular. The work has its audience. And to have to try to prove that to some fonctionnaires in Ottawa is just, it's mm-hmm. beneath me. <laughs> <laughs> to bring this back to 303, how have you guys adjusted and, and how are you guys surviving without, I mean, we're talking about $30,000, which is quite a huge cut. It's actually um, $40,000. $40,000. Yeah. So um, how... You know, how was that process of having to adjust or cut things or, or possibly uh, lose coworkers or how, how was all of that going? We decided to cut communications mostly because that was where we had gotten to the point where we were investing a lot of energy and money in communications because Heritage wanted us to because they thought that things should be in color and glossy and this kind of thing. So that was a kind of easy cut to do. What wasn't easy was uh, having to lay off <laughs> the person who took care of that. That really sucked. We did some redistributing. Maybe Andrea could talk a bit more about it, because as the senior staff member, <laughs> she's she's sort of lived that transition and um, has seen her job change a bit. Well, I guess the short answer is it's been hard and it couldn't come at a worse time. Um, 303 saw 95% of its uh, staff turnover in the past two years, twice actually. And so having to downsize by one person has been challenging and then taking those tasks and um, redistributing them out to the remaining staff members is, um, it's, it's an adjustment. We're still adjusting. And there's other there's other measures that we took. We cut our season in half. Um, we reduced edgy significantly. It's become something completely different for the next three years. But I think it's also, it was sort of, it's forced us, you know, it's one of those things, whatever, you make the best of it. So, <laughs> uh, w- you know, we're doing, we're taking things easy for the next three years just to stabilize so that staff have a chance to really get to know their positions. I'm also taking a sabbatical next year, which I'd planned before. And that's, that's a bit (laughs) weird timing as well. But uh, we're just trying to survive, stabilize, refocus. And in three years, 303, we're going to really open it up and imagine um, where else we want to go. It's going to be a new funding cycle. Hopefully a new government will be in power. (laughs) And uh, we're really, I'm I'm really open to all kinds of ideas. You know, maybe we'll become co-op. Maybe we'll move. Maybe we'll, I don't know, just really want to keep it wide open, especially with, um, you know, now in in three years also, there's going to be the Quebec Dance House or whatever, a building close by that's going to house you know, the uh, École de Danse Contemporaine, l'ADMI, the Grand Ballet, the Agora de la Danse, and Tangente. They're all going to be in the same building. And I feel that's a real opportunity to either, to to kind of uh, redefine ourselves in relation to that as well. And do we want to stay downtown? Do we want to ferociously uh, guard an alternative space in the Quartier du Spectacle? Or do we want to just boot it out of there? Mm. We'll Just move to the Mile End. Talking about um, these these other um, venues that you've taken to to get fundraising, uh, there is an event that's coming up really soon. There is a fundraiser in the Cabaret Tolle. Um, could you tell us a bit more about what this entails and everything that's coming with that? The fallout of the we spoke a bit about um, the measures that we had to take to respond to the to the funding cut, but there was a lot of conversation going on around the office and. Um, mounting uh, internal critiques of um, the government. The first, I think, the first secret uh, concept for this event, the secret code name was Stephen Harper Nudity Test. But we knew that we couldn't actually work with that publicly. So yeah, someone else owns it. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I do love that. Um, so February 1st at the Salarosa. Um, we're opening at eight o'clock with a one hour 
Austerity Cocktail and Silent Auction, which is a fundraiser for 303. And 9 o'clock, we have uh, an onstage program of many different artists coming from Montreal's cabaret scene. We're working with um, Drag Queen, uh, Drag King, um, people who have that kind of performance in their repertoire, but not necessarily performing in those characters. Circus artist, um, theater artist, musical artists, dance artists, which is our home base. Um, And all of these pieces are uh, inspired by the current state of the current political climate in Canada. So a lot of the pieces are um, a little bit angry, um, definitely issue-based. We've asked artists to um, we've asked artists to take this as an opportunity to rant and speak about their pet issue. Um, so I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Um, it's sort of a combination of um, previously created works, works that have been reworked for this program in particular, and works that have been created specifically for this program. Um, I think we're kind of proud of it, and uh, um, I'm super excited to see how all of these pieces interact with each other and what kind of evening that makes for people. I think it's going to give people a lot to think about. I'd like to hear a bit more about the silent auction, because maybe some of our listeners are going to be interested in going and bidding on some of the uh, the items that will be up for sale. So could you tell us a bit more about that? Mm. Yeah, for I mean, for years, 303 has been trying to find... Um, an annual event to do. And as you may know, doing fundraisers is often not worth the investment. It's an incredible amount of work. And I think I, I, I don't know where the idea came from. I, I saw one and thought, oh, that's, that's kind of relatively easy. <laughs> and it's something that can grow also without the space having to grow or the workload having to grow too much. So, And it's also a way that uh, everybody that a lot of people can um, contribute. It does feel a bit ironic to have an auction at a kind of anti-capitalist cabaret, but uh, we're, trying, we're trying to get items to that, um, that are meaningful to our community. So people will be able to buy like an hour of time consultation with uh, Francine Bernier from Agora de la Danse or Jackie Dashkin at La Chapelle. Um, of course, there'll be the, you know, there'll be free uh, tickets to shows. All our, you know, we've got some donations from our massage therapist and osteopath friends and uh, some bigger ticket items via rail tickets, uh, Pina Bausch tickets, uh, stuff like that. So I think it's fun. I think this will be a really fun event to, to grow on and to try and get more unusual items or offerings as well for the next years, but we'll see how it goes. It'll continue online for the, the stuff we didn't have room for or that didn't sell. So if you can't make it on February 1st, which we really, really hope that you can, then you still have the opportunity to participate. We tried to go for things that people need as well, like or that, that they would be buying anyway, and this way they can donate to 303 and get their stuff. <laughs> And after that, with the Cabaret Tolle, well, uh, we have two of the artists who will be taking part of it with us right now. So as I mentioned, Alexi O'Hara and Karen Fennel. Uh, Alexi, you'll be hosting the Cabaret, if I'm not mistaken. Will it be as yourself or under your guise of uh, Guizot? Oh, I decided that Guizot doesn't know anything about Canadian politics, so he's not going to be there. It'll be me. Yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while since I actually hosted a cabaret as myself, um, and uh, and I and it's been a challenge as I've been kind of putting together bits and ideas to actually because as an MC, generally speaking, it's like you want to be funny, you want to you want to be entertaining, but in many ways, it's sort of hard to find angles to satirize the current situation, like especially when you can look on YouTube and see a clip of Stephen Harper singing a Beatles song to Netanyahu. It's like, how do you, where do you go from there? Like, that's already absurd, you know? So, um, but, uh, but I, I, for those of you who are part of my 1000 whatever friends on Facebook, you're already aware that I'm building a giant 
Stephen Harper paper mache head. Yes. And that there will is be it a get, dance wait, it, number. Wait, wait, wait. Is it going to be a piñata? <laughs> no, no, no. Because it might be useful. I'll need it in the future. I can't destroy it. And I'm not sure that there's really like, that, that karmically speaking, I'm actually uh, in favor of smashing somebody's head open. So even even Stephen Harper's. Even if it's filled with candy? <laughs> Well, no, sorry. And I'm hoping no. that uh, that um, Stephen, uh, the big head Stephen Harper, will also. We're also doing a, f- a fundraising photo booth uh, during the auction, and I think that people will uh, relish the opportunity to have their photo taken with the prime minister. Mm-hmm. Yes, Ooh. bring your chinchillas and kittens and baby pandas. <laughs> And um, Karen, you'll be presenting a, a work, which is yeah. something. Uh, it's a Don't work say that is the a title con- of it. Sorry. Don't say the title of it. Uh, can I mention that it's something that is a work that you've already presented in the past and that you're continuing with? Or Yeah, it okay. is um, a reincarnation of a piece that I first presented last year. Um, and it is based around a text that I wrote. Um, I was actually, sorry, I was actually just going to read some words that I wrote about it. Um, because well, one thing that I, I think is interesting is how, like even Andrea, you mentioned that you know a lot of the works are about have a kind of like, angry tone or people like this idea of people being fed up and needing to speak out, and I think personally I, I'm always, thinking about like how how can we like, make art that's bold and that's that criticizes the status quo, but that also, can somehow be a fun thing to watch and a fun thing to do. So it's not all, it's not necessarily the tone doesn't have to be angry. It can also be celebratory. Um, so anyway, the thing that I'm doing, I just was going to say, blah, 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 blah. Um, it's a work that challenges notions of convention, conformity and authority in its content and form. It is an invitation to myself and to other artists to think critically about our beliefs and about our work, to ask ourselves why we choose to get up on stage to perform for an audience What do we want to say or share? Why is what we are doing important? How do we balance our personal and professional lives? Um, While its tone may at times seem harsh, it is meant to be an anthem of hope, championing boldness and fearlessness in love and art, encouraging us all as artists and humans to search for the elusive balance between individual freedom and collective responsibility. So that's my piece. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see whether or not that happens on stage. It's going to be a very fun show. I'm just saying that everyone should come. It's going to be a party. I just, I just think that it's a challenge, like a, that everyone has to take up upon themselves to, um, to move, like to to engage in in political life and political discourse beyond sharing things on Facebook. Um, it, it can be very defeating, and 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 you can feel like there's no point and it's hopeless. And the truth is, like whether or not you're depressed. You, you know, uh, it, life keeps going, you know, I mean, unless you're so depressed that you off yourself, but you know, don't do that. Um, but, uh, you know, so it's like, in many ways, it's like the challenge is to make activism fun, to make it sexy, to make it something that we want to engage in, you know, I mean, I, I, in many ways, the takeaway has to be that despite the, 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 the obvious, the the court-proven corruption of our electoral system, we still have to engage in the process because it's the only process that we have, you know. And um, and many people that I'm talking to are feeling like this is the end, like the conservatives are just basically like they're just trying to torch the country because they know that they only have two years left. Um and so, so there's kind of this sort of like, oh, well, you know, it'll, everything will be fine when Justin Trudeau becomes our prime minister, which is not true. So, um, <laughs> so, you know, it's just, it's just important to, to kind of in, engage in, in, in political life, like to get, to get involved in, in, in putting some, uh, muscle behind our, the progressive views that we share with each other when we're sitting around drinking alcohol and coffee, you know? 
I mean, and, and I, I don't know, I had this thing on New Year's Eve where it's like my goal in all of my art and, and my life these days is to make a humble living and aging really sexy and cool <laughs> because we live in this weird system where it's like if you're not if you're not young and you don't have money, then you don't exist, you know, and it's not true. It's so not true. And if we were to really believe that and not not believe it as like 40 year olds who like kind of like, well, now that I'm 40, I guess I should try to concentrate on making oldness sexy it's like if you're 25 you know you know don't don't buy in to the to the capitalist structures that want to keep you insecure and want to keep you running to the pharmacy every half hour you know or the fashion stores so spend your money on the uh auction at uh, the cabaret tole and uh you know buy second hand and locally produced <laughs> so just to remind everyone uh, this will be Cabaret Tolle and the uh, the fundraising auction the silent auction that will be taking place on Saturday February 1st oh, so the auction starts at 8pm and the Cabaret Tolle itself will start at 9pm and there's a dance party afterwards at austerity some- DJs that, that means we, we, yeah, we don't know yet <laughs> we have a few like, things in mind I'll, from the stage I'll just ask people how, how their iPods yeah. are so. come on and uh, what is admission is what suggested 10 to 20 dollars which is come on you can't go see anything at Place des Arts for that much money and you're going to get to see so many artists. And of course, this is not taking place at the actual Studio 303, but rather at Sala Rosa, which is on uh, Saint Laurent. 4848 Saint Laurent. Near the corner of Saint Joseph. Thank you, ladies, for joining us today. In studio, we've been speaking with Karen Fennell, Alexis O'Hara, Miriam Genestier, and Andrea Joy Rideout. Thank you all so much for joining us on Dirty Feet today. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thank Bye. you. <laughs> Dirty Feet is recorded every week at the Montreal Improv Theatre. Check them out at montrealimprov.com. Dirty Feet est produit et animé par... Produced and hosted by Alison Burns, J.D. Papillon et Stéphanie Morin-Robert. You can find out more about our show at nomoreradio.com, follow us on Twitter at Dirty Dirty Feet, and find us on Facebook at Dirty Feet Podcast. Vous pouvez écouter tous nos épisodes sur notre site web ou vous pouvez vous abonner également sur iTunes à notre podcast. Listen to past episodes on website or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. While you're there, be sure to give us a rating and or leave a comment to help us spread the word. Tune in next week for a whole new show. <laughs>